I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a London Review of Books podcast. This is a lecture about Guernica, about a history painting, an anachronism really, that refuses to die. I start on the left with a photo of the then US ambassador to the UN, John Negroponte, mugging for the camera in early 2001, with behind him the now notorious tapestry version of Guernica hung in the anteroom to the Security Council. Negroponte was fresh in 2001 from service as ambassador to Honduras, that is, as commander-in-chief of the Contra War against the Sandinistas next door. And it seems there was no perceived dissonance at this point between Picasso's picture of terrorized civilians and the fresh faces of those arranging their death. Things, as you know, were to change. Guernica came down from the wall. On the right is a participant snapshot of a demonstration in London in 2004. It is one of hundreds, maybe thousands, of reappearances of the painting over the past six years. I'm going to show you two more. Extraordinary one at the top, um, taken in 2008 in Calcutta just at the start of a demonstration against state violence in Nandiram, and down, down below um, Madrid. I'm not going to talk directly about the role of Picasso's painting since the US-UK invasion of the Middle East, but in a sense everything I go on to say is shadowed by it. For how did it happen, this is my lecture's basic question, that a painting of the Spanish Civil War came to emblematize state violence in the way these photographs suggest? What was it about Guernica that went on and goes on providing a usable, seemingly even a necessary form for total war? Already in 1937, the size and materials and ambition of a history painting like Guernica were anachronistic. The idea that the whole shape and temper of a new historical moment could or ought to be epitomized, monumentalized in oil on campus was increasingly hard to believe in. The general surroundings of Guernica in the Spanish pavilion spelt that out. Uh, the outside there on the left with um, one of a whole wraparound series of big photo montage um, decorations and inside a rather brilliant, strange um, uh, uh, mural, photo, photo mural by uh, Josep Renal. Film and photo montage ruled. 
in a sense, the painting in the anteroom was only there as a token of Picasso's support, Picasso's stature, Picasso's belonging to the great tradition. We shall see how deeply conscious the artist was of the pastness, the pathos of the task he'd been set. But the pastness seems to have been what turned and goes on turning the painting toward the future. That's what needs explaining. My approach will be limited. I shan't pretend to give an account of the painting and its circumstances as a whole. A single lecture can't hope to do that. But rather to think again about the mural formally with questions of pictorial structure in mind. Questions concerning the picture's space above all, its treatment of outside and inside, distance and proximity, grounding and groundlessness. These aspects of Guernica demand our attention, I'm going to argue, because in them and through them, Picasso worked his way toward a sense of the truth of what he was depicting. Space was the form truth took for him as a painter. My reasons for saying this I can't defend at length here, but in essence the case is simple. Picasso was a destroyer. It's obvious that his art dispensed with many of the tests of visual resemblance previous picturing had taken for granted. But this work of doubting and undoing left him, I think, with one ineluctable test of adequacy in art. The truth of a depiction, its ability to present a certain aspect of the world in a way that would strike the viewer as apposite and faithful, productive of real knowledge, the truth was inseparable from its spatiality. If a scene's distinctive spatial character could be given form on canvas, and the distortions and omissions of particulars in the painting be seen to derive from or contribute to that character, then the depiction would have made its claim not just to be ingenious or persuasive or even beautiful, but to have told the truth. In the sense of bread and fruit dish, for example, here, it seems that the picture is feeling its way toward a sense that sometimes, maybe splendidly, maybe ominously, the world of familiar things can take on the look of absolute permanence. Our possessions look back at us with an ancient Egyptian implacability. Symmetry and rigidity rule. Of course, this is only one among many possible modes in which space can be totalized by human subjects. But a picture, this is the point, should drive toward the mode that inheres in the object world it sees or imagines. It should end with the mode in its grasp. Picasso, for me, is a history painter. My assumption about him is the one most of us share, surely, that the last hundred years in their horror and dislocation shaped and informed his whole worldview. But for the most part they did so, I think, on a structural level. The epoch appeared in Picasso in the guise of a form of life, a shape of understanding coming to an end. My phrase for all this in the wider field of Picasso's painting is the end 
of room space. This is guitar and mandolin, usually called this, from uh, 1924 in the Guggenheim now. The end of room space. The end of room space is what this art is about. By room space, I mean simply a feeling for and a confidence in a world defined by four walls, with laid out before us a nearby, commonplace, manipulable world of things. In the background, maybe a window and a balcony, but here up front, where we are, a floor, a table, a guitar, a fireplace, wallpaper. This is a large topic and I can't explore it here, but in order to understand the true difficulty of the task Picasso took on in Guernica, I have to say just a little more. I want to insist here, at the start, on Cubism's commitment to room space, to a space of limits and corners and familiarity. Let me show you two of the triumphs of 1914 and 1916, toward the end of high cubism. Picasso's wonderful portrait of a young girl on the left and man in front of a fireplace. And let me ask you to look past, if you can, the spellbinding painterly detail to the picture's structure their view of how the world presents itself to us and acquires humanity. I believe that these paintings wish above all to convince us, as Western painting has done so often and so persuasively, that the world is material through and through, and that that materiality is more than enough. It is what makes for the human comedy. For a painter like Picasso, that comedy's organizing principle is space. And space is only made real in a painting, only truly materialized, if it is contained and solidified. That means that the world in Cubism is usually not far away, and most often smaller than us, or maybe just the same size. The young girl in her green room is cozy. Her world is a set of instruments, toys, utensils, asking us to reach out and take them. It is property. Bohemians, and for a while, of course, Picasso was a bohemian, bohemians tend to live in places where the property is deteriorating, the wallpaper is old-fashioned and peeling, the armchair broken, the music nostalgic, the frame on the mirror a fright. But it doesn't matter. The world for the bourgeois is a room. Rooms, interiors, furnishings, covers, curlicues are the individual made flesh. And no style besides Cubism has ever dwelt so profoundly in this space of possession and manipulation. The room was its premise, its model of beauty and subjectivity. What happens then when room space dies? In a sense, that was always Cubism's question. I'm not meant to suggest that because the style, in my view, lived instinctively in the 19th century, it didn't realize that that century's shaping structures were in the process of becoming extinct. Cubism is full of a sense of an ending. 
Even the playfulness of portrait of a young girl is inseparable from a sense of loss. But what happens when loss and dying are no longer implications, metaphors, but plain fact? Guernica is a painting in oil on canvas, measuring 139 inches by 307, 25 feet, 25 and a half feet long, that is, and more than 11 and a half feet high. It was first shown, and this is a wonderful um, uh, photograph from the time taken by the architect, first shown in July 1937 in the entrance hall of the Spanish Republic's pavilion at the Paris World's Fair. Out past the steel pillars of the inner courtyard, and you just see, see the painting there under the... Um, uh, um, in the sort of transparent open anteroom, out past the steel pillars of the inner courtyard was a cinema under a flimsy ceiling showing films of the Civil War. Louis Bunuel was in charge. It is a picture of an air raid. On the 26th of April 1937, in the 10th month of the Spanish Civil War, the ancient town of Guernica, for centuries the focus of Basque national identity, had been attacked by a squadron of Luftwaffe bombers, supplemented by a handful of planes provided by Mussolini. The aim was to bomb and burn the city centre in its entirety. It was the Luftwaffe's chance to see what the new incendiary explosives were capable of and to judge how long it would take to turn a town into an ash heap and what the effect of so doing would be on civilian morale. That last euphemism becomes the currency of cabinet rooms. In this sense, Guernica was inaugural. It ushered in the last centuries and our centuries war of terror, terror largely administered by the state, in which tens of millions would die. Picasso made his first sketches towards a picture of the bombing on May Day in Paris, five days after the raid. He appears to have begun work on the canvas itself about 10 days later, around May the 10th. The first photograph that his companion Dora Maar took of the work in progress is dated 11th of May. We can be fairly sure from internal evidence that the painting reached its final form on the 4th of June, or very soon after. From first sketch to finished painting then, Picasso took just over five weeks. From the moment he began work on the full-size canvas, perhaps 26 days. The days were some of the worst of the century. Franco's forces moved north and east on a broad front and the Republic began to devour its own entrails. From the 3rd to the 8th of May in Barcelona, the Communist Party struck militarily against the supporters of PUM, the independent Marxist party, and CNT, the anarchist trade union. 500 people died in house-to-house -house fighting. Poom was outlawed by the Republic on the 16th of June. The party's imprisoned leader, Andres Nin, was murdered by Stalinist agents five days later. 
Largo Caballero was forced from the premiership. Naturally, Picasso's circle of friends was split by this moment of agony. Some, like Eloire and Aragon, shrugged off the Moscow trials whose theatre of lies had poisoned the opening months of 1937. Others, like Breton, took the trials for a new inquisition and would never forgive Picasso for his later groveling to the great leader. This is him in 56, 57, I think, in Italy. Dora Maar's politics were leftist and anti-Stalinist. One of her previous lovers, Boris Souvarine, lives in history as the first of Stalin's real, meaning nauseated, biographers. We know that Picasso was in contact with left-wing and anarchist friends in Catalonia. News reached him almost certainly of what had happened on the Barcelona streets. Georges Bataille seems to have been one main conduit. The great barn of a room in which Guernica was stretched and painted took up the top floor of a building which, so he seems to have believed, in which, sorry, so he seems to have believed the action of Balzac's great story Le Chef d'Oeuvre Inconnu took place. It was a residence that Picasso treasured. I mean, it's not true, actually, but still. Dora Maher, however, who found the place for him, knew of it because it had been used as a meeting place for a group called Contre-Attaque, of which he had been a member. Whose attack was the one to be countered is a question that preoccupied the group. Breton, as usual, was ready with an answer. Our aim, he told Le Figaro, was to maintain the revolutionary activity that had been betrayed by Moscow. Do not imagine that any of this, and of course I could have told the story at much greater length, don't imagine that any of this, this familiar farce and tragedy of the left, was lost on Picasso as he brought his painting into being. But the dates I've given you put context in perspective. Guernica was planned and painted in the space of five weeks. It was an astounding feat of concentration. All its politics, all its response to fascism and Stalinism and the new face of war was in the picture. Guernica, get this further, yeah. To state it again, is 25 and a half feet long and a little over 11 and a half feet high. This is immensely bigger than any painting designed for a wall that Picasso had done previously. I think that from Picasso's point of view, the sheer height of the painting, it could just be wedged, perhaps slightly tilted forward under the beams of the Contre-Attaque assembly room. The height may have been even more of a challenge to his established way of looking than the panoramic width. Painters of murals are obliged to be pragmatic about the kind of sewing together of part and whole that is possible in a painting 25 feet long. Some viewers will find that uh, pragmatism, the casual hierarchy of episodes in Guernica, unsatisfying. Guernica has always had its critics. 
If I don't go along with them, it's because I think that Picasso so completely solved the problem that for him was much more important, that of the painting's height and ground plane. This is him. Uh, perched in one corner, right, working on, working on this enormous uh, back foot of the lurching woman. Eleven and a half feet is a true change of world for Picasso. It puts the top of the painting, as you can see from the photograph, the ceiling, the skyline, the felt ability of the depiction to contain space, even where it threatens to slide off into infinity. It puts all that out of reach. And this is dangerous. If a painting, even a large painting, loses hold of its upper edge, if the top boundary of the depiction is not every bit as present and determinant effect of viewing as the line along the depiction's floor, for Picasso, it loses hold of everything. Space slips through its grasp. And therefore, here's my core proposition really, so may a set of felt equivalents for the things, the bodies, the agonies that the space contains. I think, as I say, that eventually Picasso solved the problem. He found ways to make the painting's height work for him. Guernica, to put my overall argument boldly, is a picture that finally manages to make its giant size, a giant being always essentially tall, with all of its other dimensions following from that, work to confirm a wholly earthbound and essentially modest view of life. My finally manages isn't a flourish. True solutions, uh, I hope to show you, came late. I'll proceed uh, chronologically. We know that when Picasso was visited by the Republican delegates early in 1937, he told them that he didn't know whether he was capable of the sort of picture they wanted. For a while in the spring, he seems to have been in denial, half wishing the commission would go away. But when the subject of Guernica, the bombing raid, seized him, he knew this is my intuition, but surely a common sense one, that it came with political imperatives attached. Firstly, and most deeply, the bombing would have to be pictured as happening in public. It would have to be shown to distort, and in a sense to isolate specific individuals, isolating them in the way that terror is meant to but nonetheless to do so in a space that was somehow shared among a citizenry, held in common. Privacy had been torn apart. The room must give way to the street. And second, whatever terrible damage was done to the women and animals in the picture, and the damage would have to be great, they were not to be robbed of their ordinary materiality. The damage should confirm their creatureliness. However much the new time of death might disperse and madden them, they had to be present on the ground or in the window, actually falling and staring and screaming. These are simple, noble imperatives, and Guernica's eventual ability to respond to them is, I believe, what gives it continuing life. 
But here again is the nub of my argument. They are profoundly difficult self-instructions for the painter of bread and fruit dish. They lead him away from the space he naturally lives in. Public and political, so Picasso's first attempts at imagining the scene suggest. i show you a study done in pencil on gesso, dated the 1st of May. Public and political must mean happening outside. But is the outside a space Picasso can truly think pictorially? Jean-Vievre Laporte once asked him why he never painted landscapes. I never saw any, he replied. Je n'ai jamais rien vu. I've always lived inside myself. So is the outside, the question follows, a place Picasso can people, fill with suffering creatures, that is, as opposed to whimsical players in a dreamscape? He tries again the following day, using the same old master medium, pencil on gesso. He's trying to be serious. Of course he is. But the questions persist. I think the best way to come to an understanding of these strange first attempts is to look back for a moment to the three years immediately preceding Guernica, 1933 to 36. They're a complex and in many ways an unhappy time for him. They seem to end for much of 1936 in as much of a crisis of confidence as Picasso was ever capable of, particularly a crisis of confidence in painting. He paints almost nothing for months on end. Engraves spasmodically, I mean there are one or two wonderful engravings, but they're few. And he pours his energies into a weird, and to my mind, I mean it has its enormous admirers of course, but anyway, I will say to my mind, bad poetry. Guernica, among other things, is a convulsive awakening from this previous trance. There are many facets to the unhappiness, but I seize on one that connects with my story. In the mid-1930s, Picasso began to make the outside world his own. Sometimes it was the open space of the bullring, and sometimes, as here, a terrain vague of myth. The beasts are provided with a landscape setting. They walk the seashore or circle the walls of Troy. And all of this, I should declare my hand as a critic, is accompanied by a massive drop in the aesthetic temperature. If what Picasso is trying for, again here, is a kind of classicism, then the new version only goes to confirm the true seriousness, the massive ambition of the classicism of the 20s, which had gone on fighting for an epic space made out of cubist materials. This is the Pipes of Pan of 23. The fight is over in the 1930s. A token exterior has won. Things are more complicated than this, of course. I mean, Picasso is never dismissible. There are real achievements in these years, real imaginings of space even, but the question to ask with Guernica in mind is achievements of what kind? Here then is a painting 
I take to be one of the best Picasso did at this moment, dated March 1936. It is in pen, watercolour, and a single strip of pasted newsprint across the middle. And it is small, just over 13 inches by 20. Therefore, on one level, the comparison with Guernica I'm going to make is factitious, but all the same, I'm going to make it, because structurally, spatially, it is so interesting. Commentators on Guernica often make the point, sometimes disapprovingly, that the great mural makes use of many of Picasso's stock properties, that it smells of the bullring, and that its women and bits and pieces of warriors have migrated from the beach and the studio. The point is obvious, and the little watercolour confirms it. So many of the elements of Guernica are already there in the watercolour. The resemblances are uncanny. A dark house to the right, with sun or fire glowing through its windows. A chopped off head of a man. A little difficult to spot, but can you see it there? Big bearded warrior. A bearded hero, maybe a giant, on the ground, nestling in the grass. What appears to be a source of light in the sky, seemingly held by a hand here with long streaks of ink tracing its beams across the picture plane, and an agonized figure at the center, half human, but with the head of a, of a horse or a monster, maybe crucified, maybe hung in a noose from the tree branch. The point is not just to enumerate the features this little painting shares with Guernica, but to suggest how ordinary these features became for a while in Picasso's art, and above all, in what kind of outside they, ex they existed. The little watercolour, like many other pictures Picasso did in 36, 35 and 36, is a landscape. And the landscape is essentially weightless. The light shines through its ruined structures. The main figure is ghostly. The tree mimes horror. The ladder leans whimsically against a wall. It is a space of fantasy, of free association, a surrealist lantern slide. So the question follows, if this is the kind of exterior that seems to go naturally in Picasso's case with fire and agony and dismemberment, then how on earth could these modes of experience be put back into the world, given weight, made ordinary and substantial? Isn't the outside for Picasso, I show you the May 2nd study again, isn't the outside always going to be a dreamscape for Picasso? The imperative to make pain public, it follows, if that is taken to mean situating it in an outside of sorts, is for Picasso deeply at war with the imperative to make pain incarnate. This is the problem that preoccupies him for the next five weeks. The manufacture of Guernica turns, I think, on the devising of a space to contain the action that would not be this fairy tale edge of the city. What in the end 
replaces it in the mural is hard to characterize. That's the point. For it cannot be room space, exactly. I'm not going to tell you the story of an artist returning to the little world he knows and making his final masterpiece out of it. Certainly the space of Guernica has some of the character of a room. It is paved, maybe with tiles. It appears to open out, left and right, into an openness beyond it. But at the two top corners there seem to be lines in perspective fixing a room's top edge and sides. There's something like a light bulb in the ceiling or where a ceiling could be even a few tentative beam lines. You can just spot them and you'll spot them in more detailed images later. And Baldassare has suggested that as the painting proceed, proceeded under the rafters, and as Picasso digested the evidence of Doromar's tremendous photographs of it, he would have been seeing them, you see, sort of day by day, week by week, as he developed, the oil painting interjected, as it were, certain features of its actual surroundings. It became more like the space it was made in. Well, yes and no. It may have taken on certain features of room space, but I don't think this means, particularly at actual size, when the top of the picture is almost out of reach visually, that the space ended up looking contained or intimate. It's not a space into which the outside comes as light does through a window in the way of Picasso's great still lives from the 1920s. The outside is there, all right, but as inruption, instantaneity, horror. Somehow or other, the outside has to be made present in the picture as a proximity that is absolutely foreign to us absolutely non-human. This is a huge reversal of the cubist intuition. No wonder it was such a struggle. I leap forward. On the 9th of May, Picasso made his first attempt to sketch out the main lines of the mural to come using roughly the format dictated by the wall in the pavilion. It's still not quite long enough. Uh, of course, it's very small. But the format's getting there. The sheet teems with ideas, but spatially it hasn't come far from the pencil and gesso studies done a week before. The bowl stands a little docilely in front of a shattered townscape with twinned tiled roofs framing him right and left. The lamp bearer's house to the right is a doll's house miniature and the town in general burns in a kind of middle distance behind a deep foreground, chock-a-block with corpses. It wasn't till two days later, the 11th of May, that the first real breach with this edge-of-the-city exterior occurred. And it happened typically for Picasso when the question of scale was faced head-on. The canvas was stretched, the attic cleared, Work began. No more than a day or so later, Dora Maher took the first photo. It's stupendous, this first state of things. Clement Greenberg later went on record as thinking it much more successful, so far as one can tell from photographs, than any of the later stages it went through. 
He meant to provoke, as so often, but you see what he means. I think I look at state one of Guernica and immediately think of the wonderful pen and watercolor drawing by Ingres, self-portrait of the artist at work on his Romulus in Trinità dei Monti. Here are the two images on the same screen. And the comparison operates at several levels. Both documents we're looking at exult in the actual physical enormity of the task called history painting. And both record the moment, the essential shamanistic moment in the history painting tradition as Frenchmen conceived it, at which after the plotting and painstaking of preliminary studies, the first linear form of the whole thing appeared, out of thin air in the vast empty rectangle. It's hugely important, I think, this decision of Picasso's to recapitulate the procedures of Ingres and David and Jericho. Above all, to go back to the moment of pure line, deathless line, at the beginning of things. Line, you will immediately see by contrast with the sketch of two days before, puts the image up front on the picture plane and all but collapses the crowded middle ground. The lamp bearer leans out of the window now and comes straight past the women underneath. The bull spreads out laterally and loses his somewhat coy shading. One figure from among the tangle of fallen warriors reaches up, this extraordinary figure of course, reaches up maybe rigid in a last spasm, and lays out his chest, his torso, his penis, both his legs in strict parallel to the picture plane. It is as if the wild hindquarters of the horse in the study here had migrated to the hero. Line drawing of this kind brings everything to the surface. That would be one way of putting it. Ingres ability to go on discovering and relishing this is what made him one of Picasso's main gods. But of course, the photograph shows it, line is also transparency. Space flows through it, unobstructed. It cannot make space materialize as the heavy, close thing Picasso most deeply felt it to be. The further making of Guernica, I think, was a sequence of attempts to solve this riddle. Could one have a space in painting that was full as opposed to empty, felt as a heavy, breathable, confining reality, without a picture of Guernica's size becoming all obstruction, all detail, all brilliant bits and pieces? That was the question and not a rhetorical one. This lecture, to say it again, can't do its subject justice. There are, for a start, now known to be at least nine photos taken by Dora Maar of Guernica in pro progress, plus a close-up of the horse's head early on, and three or four shots, I've shown you two of them, of Picasso at work, with the painting shown obliquely or in part. Any one of these deserves more attention than it has so far been given in the literature. A full account of state one, 
to return to it momentarily. Would certainly have to go further with the Ang comparison. That's the great Romulus, the painting done in Trinita dei Monti um, up above. And this in turn, since anger usually appears in Picasso when sexuality is in question, would lead to the uniqueness in Picasso's work of this moment of homoerotic male beauty. Seems to me strange, actually, that this uniqueness has not been recognized or dwelt upon much. The turn of the hero's nakedness into the picture plane is charged, I would say naive, in its equation of resistance with phallic perfection of form. Again, the comparison with the drawing from two days earlier is telling. It is one of Guernica's signal achievements, I want to suggest, to have death acted out by women, and animals without the actions partaking of the erotics of the bullring. Women just are the actors, mostly, in Picasso's world. It may go on being a problem for us that what they perform a great deal of the time is sex and death. Women are machine à souffrir. We can take that aphorism, it's Picasso's, as compassionate or gloating according to our preference. It's part of a longer and deeper debate with François Gillot about the actual state of the war of the sexes. But for our purposes, what matters is how machine à souffrir plays out in Guernica. I think compassion rules. And Picasso knows full well, I think, that in order for it to do so, he must diffuse, throw into reverse gear, his habitual association of violence with the sexual act. The way the mother with the dead baby is treated in the May 9th study. She's the central figure in the drawing's right half. Is typical. Logically, of course, the mother must be back in an undefined middle ground on the far side of the horse's wild, splayed hindquarters. But visually, one part of us surely registers the horse's haunches as belonging to her. And this kind of conflation of horse and woman is Picasso's normal imagining, so to speak. State one of Guernica itself, two days later, seems to me a first attempt, as I said, a, a naive attempt, at expunging the normality by simply reversing the sexual signs. If the male hero could concentrate the erotic energy in his fist and chest, then maybe even the woman in flames to the right, typical and, you know, brilliant, of course, Captivating, that's the problem, uh, Picasso. Maybe even the woman in flames to the right could agonize without her agony being desirable. It's simple-minded with all the simplicity of repression, but it goes to show the erotic stakes of Guernica, and a full account of the picture's making would have to trace the way this first homoeroticism this borrowing whole from Davidian theater was gradually worked out of the system. 
One great thing that had to go, of course, was the clenched fist. It grew bigger. It gathered itself a phallic halo of sunlight and harvest festival. It blew away. Francis Fraschina has argued that one main reason it vanished was the state of things in Barcelona at the very moment Picasso was working. The blood of anarchists in the streets and the triumph of the party. The clenched fist, remember, was more and more specifically a Stalinist symbol. Francis may well be right. And of course, as Arnheim long ago argued so eloquently, there are complex structural reasons why a picture space, why the picture space couldn't go on hanging so decisively from a central unbroken spine. But part of the painting out, I'm su suggesting, is best understood as a kind of embarrassment on Picasso's part. State one had been too beautiful, too male, too Greek, it was transparent about too much. The erotics of Guernica, then, is one among several stories worth telling and still, I think, largely to be told. But my story is space, and I return to it. And even here, I'm going to be selective. I'll jump to a moment quite close to the end. By the time Picasso was working on the picture as we see it here, probably two weeks or more into the process, maybe into the first days of June, the basic tonal and spatial structure of the picture had been long decided. The painting was going to be organized around a repeated diagonal pattern of polarized lights and darks, a triangulation, we might say. Look, for instance, this is clearer in the finished painting, at the grey and white geometry emanating from the lamp, or even better, as a sort of epitome, the deep black slashing across the door frame underneath the lamp bearer, or the flames, the window, the strange ceiling line top right. Guernica's critics have always loathed this geometry. Its triangles are academic, they say. I'm sure they're right, but the answer to them, I think it's the answer Picasso was struggling for uh, through the last weeks, was to engineer a kind of heavy, palpable activity in and around the geometry, on the surface, in the nearness of the foreground, that would counterweigh the crispness of the lights and darks. I think he did, but I think it was hard. A lot depends on real size. Guernica suffers hugely, it's the price of fame, from being continually miniaturized and disembodied in the world of mechanical reproduction. You should try to build into your judgment of what I now say about its spatiality an awareness, a memory or imagining, of what it's like to be in front of the picture itself. Remember that one's sense of physical location in regard to the scene, and I mean by this not one's measured height against it, but one's imaginative projection into its space, is that it is hugely bigger than oneself, that at most a viewer comes up to the horse's chest.
And this gigantism is again of a new kind for Picasso. We are, to borrow a phrase from Michel Ariste, talking about Picasso's monsters of a few years before, we are terre à terre with the giants in Guernica, on a level with them, looking up into a world that is flimsy and vulnerable, the pinned paper feel of the horse's body is notorious, but at the same time heavy, ordinary, standing on the same ground as ourselves. And of course the artifact of the slide or JPEG utterly travesties this physical relation. The best I can do is offer a photograph like this, which is already taken from quite far away, you notice. In no sense is it creating a false proximity to wage war with the textbook's false distance. I think it registers at least the kind, the conditions of seeing that Guernica intends. Um, it's also my way of saying thank you to Andrew Moisey, who took this picture of the prof, um, and uh, also many of these fabulous digital images of detail that you're seeing. What can I say then about the kind of seeing Guernica intends? Well, at least this. First, we are certainly back in a world of nearness with everything pressed close to where we are. But this does not turn in the end on the making of an overall container for the action. It doesn't turn on the inside-outside distinction. It's sufficiently obvious that Picasso decided finally to offer us bits and pieces of both. The skyline up top changes constantly from ceiling to roofscape. This might be irritating, a sign of the painter's inappropriate cubist cleverness, if it mattered. But in situated vision, I don't think it does. The upper part of the picture is accompaniment. It is not where space vitally is in Guernica. Space is here, lower down, closer to us, in the weighted, grounded, bottom, heavy world of the giants. Space is a matter of silhouettes and painted cutouts, jockeying for attention with quite other kinds of extension in space. The horse's neck and jaws, for example, or that wonderful slight billow of the curtain. Just <laughs> the geometry just sort of broken by the floating of the curtain over the arm um, as the lamp bearer pushes it aside, or the push the flow, almost as if she squeezed from a tube of the lamp bearer's face towards somewhere right over our heads. It took some doing this. Let me go back to the moment I promised to end with. Our best guess is that we're a week from the end. One thing that's always fascinated commentators about these two states of the painting is that in them, Picasso appears to have stuck pieces of patterned, presumably coloured, paper onto Guernica's blacks, whites and greys. It was more than a momentary whim. Both pieces of paper, this one and this is a piece of paper, 
in state six are applied to the woman stumbling across the foreground from the doorway at right. One of them is a loose patch of wallpaper, the other has been carefully cut to the shape of the woman's headscarf. There is a moment, seemingly a day or so, when the pieces disappear. We have another photograph. And then they are stuck on again, placed just slightly differently, and two more pieces are added. A wallpaper strip over the grieving mother's dress, and a bizarre cutout. This one. Again, of what looks like wallpaper, trimmed to the shape of the falling woman's lower regions. We're back in the world of cubism. It is as if Picasso suddenly felt that Guernica had to be put to the test of collage. And clearly, the pinned-on papers, though in the end Picasso discarded them, were what provoked the most obviously cubist feature of the final work, the lines of black stippling that all at once, in June, here they are, spread over more and more of the horse's body, turning it partly into a kind of newsprint image of itself. I interpret the pinned papers like this. Even so late in the day, with the ebb and flow of monochrome long established as the painting's matrix, Picasso looks to be uncertain about whether the light-dark geometry really made the picture happen on the surface, or enough on the surface, or whether it was beginning to open the illusion backward in perspective into too much space. It is the problem of picturing, as far as Picasso is concerned, the problem of surface and depth, and particularly the priority modern painting gives to the one, surface, and the distrust it has of the other. The collage pieces are surface, literalised, materialised. I don't believe Picasso ever seriously considered changing the picture's whole economy, at the 11th hour, or even of interjecting here and there a note of colour into it. He was thinking, this is my interpretation, thinking about what in painting kept surface present. Above all, about how much differentiation of surface texture, surface incident, was needed to interrupt, to flatten out the light-dark machine. He wanted proximity, but not intimacy. The look of things come out of the dark, with the dark still clinging to them. In the end, he saw commas of horsehair were enough. But this was because, in the meantime, he'd found a solution for the picture's most unresolved aspect, its ground level the nature of the contact between its actors and objects and the surface they stood on. Ground level is still radically underdetermined, you'll notice, in state eight, just before the end, really. The broken shards of the warrior, all right, this broke now turned into, notoriously, of course, into a broken, shattered statue. The hooves of the horse, 
and the Bataille-esque big toes of the woman lurching in through the door, they all fall into the bottom edge of the picture like so many weightless, unlocated floaters. Maybe Picasso had the idea at this stage that groundlessness, vertigo, was to be the painting's predominant note. Maybe the falling woman would dictate the whole plot. In the end, she didn't. The change, when it comes, happens fast. This, to remind you, is the ninth of Dora Maar's photos, taken a matter of hours before Picasso decides the painting is finished. And as soon as the surfaceness, the surfaceness rediscovered in the collage pieces, begins to be put into the painting, comma by comma, spreading across the horse's back and belly, the whole balance of space and ground in the foreground begins to shift. The horse's hooves have legs to attach to, the broken statue becomes three-dimensional. Cut-out surface is answered by hard ground level. A grid of tiling springs up, anchoring the painting's whole spatiality. Look what it does, for instance, a little bit hard to illustrate this, but I'll try, to the long, hard-edged diagonal. This one. Like the bottom of a wall, maybe, or even an upended door that pushes back into space behind the stumbling woman, the horse's forehoof, and the warrior's broken sword. That line, as a basic structuring idea, had been there for days, maybe weeks. It seems to arrive at the same time as the first painted, pasted papers. You can see it. But it doesn't really operate on Guernica's foreground. It doesn't carve out sufficient space for the foreground actors to stand on until the grid is painted in. Then everything seems to harden and clarify. The curving grey shadow midway across the wall. This one here. Snaps into visibility. The horse kneels heavily on the tiles. I like the photo Dora Maar took of Picasso squatting on the studio floor by his painting towards the end and pondering, of course this is me wildly reading in, pondering just what it would take to materialise the still abstract last inches of the illusion. In the end, the creatureliness came easily, almost naively but only because he saw finally how surfaceness and groundedness could coexist. Form spread out along the nearest possible front edge of the floor plane, as if no more than a few inches from us. Up above, bodies switched to and fro between paper thinness and stamping solidity, and the squares of the tiling are pushed back beyond the bodies, making them seem closer still. This is proximity, in a word, but reinvented. It is flatness finding its feet. I began this lecture by saying that questions of space and habitation for Picasso are bound up with questions of truth. Not persuasiveness or brilliance or beauty, in my view, but good old-fashioned validity.
Here at the end, I'll, I'll return to that. Obviously, truth in Picasso doesn't equal life-likeness or verisimilitude. His aren't paintings that wish to persuade us that the world on show is continuous with ours or even exactly equivalent to it. And yet, the idea of world persists. And therefore, I argue, there is one thing that Picasso finds indispensable to any painting that counts, namely space, the making of an imaginatively habitable three dimensions, one having a specific character, offering itself as a surrounding. Of course, it's the great three dances of 25, entombed in a dark, dismal room at Tate Modern. <laughs> one way of describing this constant in Picasso is to say that picturing for him is unthinkable if it does not aim at providing a space for being in, providing a room. And maybe even my adding a simple substantive to room here is wrong. Because providing room, the sine qua non of the human, just is for Picasso providing a room, a specific and familiar floor, wall, wainscot, window. Being for human beings has as, it, as its very precondition being in, reaching out, really or imaginatively, and feeling the shape and pressure of a place. I hope that saying this helps to bring the achievement of Guernica into focus. For suppose modernity were to come upon an instant, this is a terribly innocent watercolour by Picasso from 1919, window with airplane. Suppose modernity were to come upon an instant in which the whole imaginative structure of habitation, of being in, of shaping the world around an implicit model of room and window, of containing and belonging, of being inside or out, Suppose it looked the death of all that in the face. Suppose the airplane banked in the sky and headed in our direction, north by northwest-like. And suppose this were more than a local occurrence. Suppose that in the bombing of Guernica, modernity in some sense encountered its future and saw in little a whole form of life collapsing ceasing to exist as the determinate, dependable form of the human. How on earth was painting to represent such an ending without falling itself into a spatial rubble, a spatial nothing? Maybe propped up or distracted from as by a conjurer's misdirection of attention by foreground melodrama. That was the problem. There will, I think, always be disagreement about whether Picasso found a solution. But what this lecture has meant to suggest, above all, is the nature of the task and how much the task for Picasso meant reinventing everything. That I can even claim he rose to the challenge. That he found a way, rather at the last moment, to put his humans and animals on the ground and one that was neither outside nor in, but truly the one becoming the other. A world in which women 
and beasts still fought for a footing just as everything dissolved, that I can claim this at all, this enormity, and hope to persuade you is more than enough. Thanks for listening. For more, go to lrb.co.uk.